Lab Talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to the 19th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. My guests today are Phoebe Bisnoff and Becky Smith. Phoebe is an undergraduate researcher, a chemical engineering major, and the president of OSEM, that's for Out in STEM, right? Um, originally from Los Angeles, California. She's a, a senior in the chemical engineering department, and her research involves looking at ways to improve the stability and electronic properties of nanocrystals for use in LEDs and solar cells. Mm -hmm. uh, Becky is a recent graduate of the master's program at UMass Amherst Geosciences, and now she's working on her PhD. She's originally from Freeport, Maine. Um, and her research involves using organic molecules pr preserved in ocean sediments to reconstruct land and sea surface temperatures spanning the mid-Pliocene warm period about 3.3 million years ago, the most recent warm period uh, in Earth's history where CO2 concentrations were close to what they are today. Um, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Phoebe and Becky. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And joining as my co-host today is Panina Beatty. She's a comedian from Hartford, Connecticut, and you can check out the boy-girl party uh, <laughs> uh, Friday, July 20th at the Tainted Ink is it the tainted ink or just tainted ink? I think it's just tainted ink. Okay, no, yeah. The, no, that. <laughs> I was like, that didn't sound right when I said it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at Tainted Ink in Hartford, and you can find out more info about the Hartford Comedy Festival online. Thank you for joining me. Panini. Yeah, super excited to be here. Cool. So we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, Phoebe, you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? Yeah, okay. So as you said, I work on improving the stability and electronic properties of nanocrystals for LEDs and solar films. I'm focusing on LEDs right now just because um, usually if you can make a nanocrystal that's good for LEDs, they'll also be good for solar films, but LEDs are a lot easier to make um, just because there's less components. Um, yeah, so right now basically what I do is I synthesize different ligands which attach to the base nanocrystal structure and those are called perovskites because they have a similar crystal structure to this one weird mineral that's only found in the russian mountains <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so it's very ordered very crystalline and you have to add these chemical ligands to the outside of it to keep them stable in light and environments for use in electronics Okay, so there's a lot of words that I need to yeah, <laughs> ask for clarification. Sure. So, yeah. so what's a ligand? Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Is um, this a hard thing to explain? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm obviously kind of, kind of so, ignorant of chemistry. Um, if you have, like, a large spherical molecule, like a nanocrystal, okay. you attach these larger, bulkier chemicals to the outside around it, to kind of make a shell, and that's what a ligand is in that oh, sense. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So what what role do these play in LEDs? Like, I think most of us have heard of LEDs, like mm -hmm. that's the light source, and it's good because it doesn't use a lot of electricity, right? Yeah. Um. So the reason LEDs use less electricity is because of what they're made out of, which isn't always nanocrystals, but the nanocrystal ones have... Um, 
a lot higher efficiency. And nanocrystals specifically, what they do is they release a lot of light in a very narrow um, like wavelength band gap. So like, got a little wavelength tattoo actually. Cool. It'll just be like a very small slice, so it'll be a very distinct color versus like these have kind of like a broader yellowy orange thing that you see where an LED is like, that's yellow and you know that that's yellow. And, and by these, you, you're pointing at the incandescent I'm at the lights. lights. <laughs> so when you, look at, when you look at different lights, are you like, are you like Neo in the Matrix? Like you need to see. No. no. Okay. We're just going to keep it moving. <laughs> you know exactly what wavelength that is. You're like, that I've is already not. written down so many corny jokes and comments. I've, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, like, generally, you know, like when I talk to people that I work with and we talk about our favorite colors, we'll be like, oh, you know, in like the 400 nanometer range. Wow. You know, like, green is, is my favorite. But what yeah, what number is green? Um, green's like in the 400s. Yeah. Nice. Solid. Oh, so you, you don't even say the colors. You just are no. like, the number is, <laughs> specifically the shade. You know, I mean, it's pretty accurate. So, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, like, um, a greeny blue is like 511, and that's the nanocrystals that I have right now. And, like, going back to like really basic chemistry, you know, obviously the light that's emitted is the um, opposite of the light that's being absorbed because mm. of how eyes work. Um, it's like the one that's not absorbed or something? It's the complementary color. Yeah. So if you absorb in 511, it's going to show orange, but mine reflects, emits. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, do these so, crystals yeah. have anything to do with like energy crystals? <laughs> I'm so like, sorry. Crystals? Like, like in Star Trek? No, like like <laughs> like Pioneer Valley crystals. <laughs> oh, no man. no offense. I like love Pioneer Valley crystals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I 100% believe that if the Pioneer Valley at large got a hold of nanocrystals, they would have a great time with it. <laughs> Is there a spiritual element? Yeah. To nanocrystals? I don't know. Um I mean, they're very fluorescent. Like you just, okay. you know, just in solution, they're like very bright. Um, mm -hmm. I think they're just cool. So you're saying I could definitely be convinced of yes. of spiritual yeah. healing. Okay, cool. Absolutely. <laughs> so if we walked into your lab, is mm -hmm. there like glowing stuff like yeah, cool. shining on your face? I mean, like... I keep them indoors because they're light sensitive. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, because the ligands are light sensitive, which is the issue. What happens to them if they're exposed? They just slowly to degrade. Okay. Yeah. So traditionally, they use. Um, uh, two specific ligands that have like long fatty tails that's not common language um, <laughs> yeah I'm like what's a long fatty I tail <laughs> um, I think I have one of those <laughs> yeah. it's like, like a, a kangaroo tail yeah. so like they have these long carbon mm -hmm. chains to get into the solvent that you um, synthesize the nanocrystals in so that they can attach but the issue with that is that those long carbon chains are generally very sensitive um, to light and just over time they'll degrade and sometimes they'll even react with each other and pop off the oh. nanocrystal which is obviously bad if you're trying to make a long-lasting electronic um, so what I do is I actually make zwitter ionic I know I'm gonna get back to that I, swear to God. <laughs> I make these zwitter ionic ligands and they actually have both functional groups and the functional group is what attaches to the nanocrystal on the same molecule, so you don't need two different ones, so they can't react with each other. Mm -hmm. oh. So they stay on the nanocrystal, um, which is great. Mm -hmm. And then I also add a like cyclic conjugated 
system. Um, <laughs> I basically add a like, big bulky molecule with inherent electronic properties to kind of um, boost the nanocrystals electronic properties while also adding a long carbon chain so that it can get in solution but without totally insulating the electronic properties of the nanocrystal with all these bulky chains around the crystal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this is all oriented towards making this a stable? Yeah, it's okay. stable and it has enhanced properties. Okay. Yeah. And is it a gen- like generally an energy resource or is it like for light bulbs or what's the... Um, generally like LEDs are for screen displays and stuff oh, like right. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, I haven't actually made an LED with any of my crystals yet. I'm working on it. Nice. We got an LED making machine recently. Oh. We just set it up last week. So, so. how do you go from crystal nano crystals to actual Isn't that just LED? A 3D printer. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, Continue. no, that's, that's a great question. Um, I have no idea how the LED machine works. Okay, I'm yeah. gonna find that out soon. <laughs> We're all really excited about it, to be honest. We like just set it up. Nice. Um, but basically, an LED is just like it has two leads um, and one of those is the nanocrystal and basically you just add a voltage and it turns on Mm -hmm. right that's how Mm -hmm. things work Um, (laughs) electronics yeah electronics (laughs) do that (laughs) so the nanocrystal is just the part that emits Um, it's not the entire device but in my opinion it's the most important when you (laughs) pump a voltage through like Mm -hmm. will it degrade your crystals over time like eventually just because of the electricity yeah yeah, yeah definitely so it, but interesting did yeah. they stop glowing because of that they will get duller over time yeah yeah oh. wow this honestly it sounds like magic <laughs> it, it's yeah. glowing green and blue you said yeah That's you can so make cool. other colors too just depends oh, on oh um, man All you right. switch out the halides on the ends of the chains and that changes the color the what? The halides. It's um <laughs> on the periodic table. It's like bromine. Oh, okay. Oh. I actually I do know that. One. I know I know I know that. Yeah, <laughs> so like different halides have different color signatures. Yeah, basically. Oh. Cool. Okay. Cool. What, do you have a favorite one? Um, I mostly use bromine, which is like the green one because it's the easiest to work with. Mm-hmm. It's kind of basic for chemistry. Mm-hmm. Not basic as in like acid based, but like standardized. Has <laughs> <laughs> a low uh, weight mat. Ma- mass? I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I didn't even take high school biology. All right. <laughs> so um, how, what like drew you to this field? How did you get into this? Um, it seems like very advanced research for an undergrad. I don't know. I don't do chemistry. Not. Yeah, the minute I heard undergrad, I was like, huh? what? Yeah, and so she's doing magic. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I'm in a program here at UMass called Integrated Concentrations in Science. Um, and it's all different STEM majors, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And basically, it's like a 40-credit honors program. And it teaches you how to work with people outside of your field how to talk about your field to people who aren't in your field, specifically people who aren't scientists. Um, And then you have like a big thesis thing at the end. Um, And because of the thesis thing, they highly encourage you slash bully you into joining a lab group (laughs) before your sophomore year is over. Wow, that's Um, really early. Mandatory clicks. Exactly. (laughs) So I've been doing research pretty much my entire college career. I actually joined second 
semester of my freshman year um, in a different lab group, but my professor, my previous professor actually went to a different school, so I switched groups. Oh. But yeah, so Was I it a similar kind of, were you doing chemical engineering still? I was or? still doing polymer science mostly, oh, okay. but it was a little bit more bio-based. I did this project on um, the mechanical strength of corneal collagen, oh. and specifically this new medical procedure um, where basically you would polymerize new collagen onto somebody's cornea wow. to strengthen it, specifically for keratoconus disease, which is this really rare eye disease where like your corneal layer on the top of your eye gets really thin and kind of cone-shaped. Oh, oh I actually have heard of that. Yeah. I saw it really? on, I think I saw it on House. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I had a family friend with that. I have a family friend who has that. <laughs> Initially, I was like, I must have seen that on TV somewhere. But no, I actually know someone who has that issue. Yeah, Aww. so I just studied um, the rate of polymerization and the mechanical testing of it. It was super boring, to be honest. I hated it a lot. <laughs> it's but like important work, but yeah, when you, I just, the daily. I don't like biology, so I was like, how did I get this? Yep. <laughs> this isn't what this lab does usually, but, you know, it was still fun. Those crystals are so much prettier. They're so much cooler, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Nice. So what's like a typical day for you? Like, do you come in and you just like mix a bunch of chemicals together or like <laughs> do you have like, yeah, I'm curious. Um, okay. Well, because it's the summer, this is pretty much all I'm doing. Um, so typical day, usually get in. I like, I usually wait until the morning to like run NMR, which is nuclear magnetic spectroscopy. Yeah. Yeah. I never really think about what that means. It's just NMR. <laughs> NMR. Um, wait, it's NMR, but the last word is spectrosity? Oh, wait. Resonance spectroscopy. Okay. Sorry. I'm, no, I, I skipped ahead I of myself. I thought that was me, yeah. Um, yeah, so I can kind of like identify what I made the day before. And I usually do that just because the NMR gets booked up in the afternoon because everybody's mm. doing it. So uh, I get there early. And so you use that to figure out what you made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I have to like analyze a bunch of mm. peaks and be like, what does this mean? Like from the day before? Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I don't make nanocrystals too often because I really need to I make a batch and then that lasts me a while. So I mostly just work on the ligands specifically, um, looking at different ones, kind of changing out different um, like functional groups and properties then seeing what it does. How do you make the nanocrystals? Um, it's called the hot injection method. Ooh. Yeah, it's, I know. Uh, that sounds sexy. <laughs> sexy yeah, right? It's not as sexy as person. Do you have to wear a hazmat suit? No. Okay. All right. You wear, You're already like, a gloves, step above though. Breaking Bad, so. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. It's true. All right. Yeah. Actually, I found out yesterday in my lab group meeting that there's um, the specifically American scientific term called water white, which is like when something is just clear. <laughs> <laughs> they call it water white. That's classic it's American. Like, it's just like it's clear, like there's it's solubilized. There's nothing in it, but I don't know. Americans are weird, I guess. Was that? And I was like, oh, oh no. that's where they got Walter White from. Oh. Really? I assume you think it's like a pun, oh. kind of. Yeah, oh. that no one gets. Yeah. <laughs> gets well, because nobody even understands why you would call right something water white. Yeah. So clear. Make sense. <laughs> You're like, but it's clear. It's not, <laughs> like white and clear are not the same thing, yeah, actually. It's just like a weird old school so. chemistry term. Huh. Um, 
But yeah, so I wear goggles and gloves and a lab coat. It's purple because it's fireproof. Ooh. I love that a lot. Mm. Wait, um, purple means fireproof? Yes. Why are ours purple? <laughs> not in like, yeah, like oh, situation. No. I think all of ours are white. UV rays are not flammable. All right. <laughs> you usually can't light things on fire with it. Um, okay. We did have a fire in Conti recently, but that's... Like, Pretty is that why standard. it's purple? Because of UV rays? Or? No. Oh, no. Okay. I mean, like, in a broader sense. <laughs> in an extremely broad sense. Yeah, in, term, in, in other words, they have nothing yeah. to do with each other. Well, because purple. Yeah. Same color. It's violet. Or is that where you were going with that? No, because, like, pigment that they use to dye it has, you know, groups in it that make it emit purple. And okay. that's, like... Physically why it's purple, but they make it purple to dis- right. make it distinct from the lab coats that aren't mm. fireproof. Gotcha. Yeah. I feel like all lab coats should probably be fireproof, though, Yeah. No? I, I, I <laughs> right? it's more expensive or yeah, something. Fair. Like, some people don't need it. You yeah. Know, like Plus, the white coat is doctors, so iconic. You know, they don't need yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. They don't. Yeah. You guys can't see, but Becky is frowning. <laughs> she's like, why? <laughs> she's like, why isn't my lab coat fireproof? I love the color purple. It's like a periwinkle. I know it's such a good too. book. It's quite nice. <laughs> Stop oh. it. <laughs> oh, I can picture it now. I'm like, I've seen these lab coats. Yeah. yeah. We're supposed like, to stop, drop, and roll if we catch on fire. <laughs> really? Oh. Did you do a training? Yeah. Did you practice? Well, we just have to take online training for like, if you are set on fire, this is you what you do. You didn't have to go to the. In person? Oh, we did. Oh, okay. You know, like the first semester. Yeah. I had to take online training for alcohol, and uh, I didn't pay attention to it. I just played it, like, on <laughs> – I just played it on continuous during one of my classes. <laughs> did you guys do that for your safety? No. Probably not. I hope no. you didn't. <laughs> I was 23 when I had to take it already, so I was like, this isn't – I already learned it in the wild, you know? <laughs> I don't need – <laughs> Everybody, I told this to other students, and they were like, "No, you can't do that." I was like, "You don't. You had two drinks. It's fine." <laughs> I did fire safety training, yeah, we which to. is funny because I work in a computer lab, <laughs> which I guess They're the computer computers. could catch could on fire. Just I run yeah. really big models in the computer. Yeah. Like I'm not happy, but, um, <laughs> but at the end of the fire safety, it was mostly very boring. It was somebody just talking mm-hmm. about all these fires he's seen, you know, which actually was kind of cool. He was cute, like, cute old man who was like, this fire, because the candle, yeah. (laughs) And um, old man. (laughs) I hope hope he's not listening and offended (laughs) by, like, the diminutive tone raising. But um, at the end, they have, like, a fire, like, thing. Yeah, they make a fire for you to, like, practice putting them out. And... I was like, oh, this is going to be, I was like, there's not enough, like, things for everybody to do it. And I was like, I really hope I get to do it. And then he was like, so who wants to try? And nobody in my group wanted to try. And I was like, I was like trying to be polite and like pretend I wasn't like going to like elbow people to get (laughs) it. And you're like, wait, I want to do this. (laughs) Then you're like, wait, I'm a comedian. Okay, I can go for (laughs) it. I was the first one to put out the (laughs) play. And like only like two other people did it. He was like, you don't have to do this. But I was like, why wouldn't you? kind of reserved about it. I remember doing it and he was so encouraging after he's like good job and I, I pressed the button thank god it worked <laughs> yeah. you used like an extinguisher yeah it was oh, like a rare fun. opportunity to yeah. use an extinguisher yeah. in a non-emergency situation yeah Everyone's dreaming. i always wanted to try one when i was a kid because it looked like whipped cream let's be honest oh, that's yeah. why i was into it that's so true. <laughs> i don't really know what that stuff is to be honest 
some kind of chemical, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's like and, a foam. And, I was going to say antifreeze, but that's not what I meant. I know that there's <laughs> the different ones for different fires. Right, there's okay. different kinds of right, fires. Like a chemical fire would probably yeah. need a different kind of... Yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but I, if I saw it, I'd be like, yeah, that that's what it's called. That's it. <laughs> I can't remember. Foam. 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 So um, you also started the Out in STEM chapter here, right? Yes, I did. Do you want to talk about that? or? Yeah, sure. We don't have to. We don't oh, want you to. started it? Oh, yeah, oh, I started cool. it three years ago. I've been the president for three years. Uh, super tired. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I love event planning. Um, yeah, it's really funny how I ended up becoming president because um, super briefly, I, don't, I became friends with Paula Reese in the College of Engineering, and she's head of the diversity programs office. Um, and I actually switched from chemistry to chemical engineering my first year, and she kind of facilitates like moving into engineering mm. or switching majors into mm. engineering. And so I was talking with her a bunch, and basically one time I see her and she was like, you know, I also run the diversity programs office, and you're really the only gay person I know in engineering. <laughs> Would you want to start like a gay organization for engineering? And I was like, I guess so. <laughs> and that's really how it happened. <laughs> so you got roped into it. Basically, yeah. And it's really funny because, like, as a person, I'm pretty flaky and really terrible at going to events. So it's hilarious that I'm the one who makes them. Mm. So when you make these events, you're like, I get it if you don't want to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. Yeah, because, like, I'm making events, and I'm like, would anyone come to this? I wouldn't come, to, I come this. to this. <laughs> you know? So, like, I try really hard to make, like, things like, sound cool like at least there's free food you know mm, yeah which you know cool. bankrolled by that the engineering college so like cha-ching nice. um, <laughs> <Cha> <laughs> but yeah so it's i mean it's an lgbtq like professional and social organization for science technology engineering and mathematics um it's a national organization so we're just one chapter um the national conferences actually are probably the coolest events I've ever been to, you know, like as a gay scientist. <laughs> um, actually, the next one is in Houston in November, and we get a tour of NASA headquarters. Whoa. I'm so excited about it. Nice. Do you need you any can. help? No. <laughs> yeah, I want to go Absolutely. Please come. It's, really? Yes. University I will bet pay we could get you. a huge <gasps> chapter that from so Geoscience great. to go, please which is come. awesome. Just let me know. We'll make it happen. Cool. Cool. But my plan is to just walk around NASA headquarters and like point at things and be like, Houston, we have a trash can. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad so you made annoying. that joke so I didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah. It's always a really fun time. We talk about Star Trek a lot because of me, mostly. <laughs> but Is it mostly time? undergrad or are there nope. a significant number? Significant um, graduate students, mostly engineering. It's mostly engineering. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, um, we're trying to get more people in other places. We have a lot of comp sci now. They're Maybe hard if you to could get like reps from different departments, that would yeah. be a good yeah. way to get people just, It's probably yeah. just about like getting people to be like, hey, to need all the people around them. Yeah. Be like, hey, yeah. we yeah. should yeah. do this. There's, right? probably, like, there's definitely more like LGBTQ people in like College of Natural Sciences, but like I have no reach over there. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's pretty much what's up. A lot of it's yeah. about just like taking ownership. Yeah, like or mm -hmm. giving people ownership. Mm -hmm. You know, delegating kind of. We yeah. should probably help with yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes for like 
this is just for my grad school experience like departments can be a little bit separated so like yeah. college of natural sciences doesn't really interact that much with engineering yeah so obviously people in stem that are queer might not interact with other queer students yeah so i can see true. why there's a big pretty big division i'm not i can't speak for the undergrad experience obviously but that's been my experience for sure. I definitely stay same. in moral and do my work in moral. <laughs> sometimes get coffee. I think what's really interesting is even like interdepartmentally, you know, a lot of um, gay people just like don't talk to each other because it's like not professional or something <laughs> to talk about being gay at work, which is mm. weird. Um, which I think is kind of like an overarching thing in STEM specifically. It's like you just mm. don't really talk about your personal lives because it's like not objective which is fake but right. you know whatever yeah i feel like i've even seen from getting my masters i was here from like 2011 to 2014 working on my masters and then came back in 2017 and i feel mm -hmm. like there's been a little bit of a sea change and maybe that's the work of students in my department specifically and mm -hmm. that may have not be happening in other departments but in science in general and maybe also because I'm on Twitter. I hmm. feel like that's like a really good outlet for people yeah. to talk more about like their the intersection of their personal lives yeah. and yeah. as scientists too. Yeah. First on Twitter is the best. Yeah, I need to get Twitter. You should. <laughs> it's pro fun. Twitter. But I think I feel like there's mm -hmm. a little bit of a push to like mm -hmm. humanize scientists yeah. and be like, yeah, we're allowed to have other interests. <laughs> like <laughs> that doesn't hurt our science. It actually helps it. Like because yeah, we're motivated and part of society yeah. in like more ways than just <laughs> like um, lab coats. I also. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I just. I liked what you said before about the program they're in that kind of it it requires you to develop these partnerships just in general have you found that your research is benefited from these kinds of partnerships with scientists with people who are doing research in you know similar but very different fields I guess yeah um Yes. That's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely. I think what I really loved about the ICONS program is, um, you know, for like the first two years, we would have like these mini projects. We'd have three weeks to like solve a global problem, which obviously no one solved anything. <laughs> but the point was just to like take something really big and like start something. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting about it is that you would have these groups where like I had this one group. It was me, a chemical engineering, a chemist, an electrical engineer and a mathematician. Cool. And we made superconductors out of my used coffee grounds. <laughs> Wait, yeah. really? Yes. What? It was probably one of the funnest things I've ever done in my life. And it was a great group of people. I'm still really good friends with them. Cool. You learn a lot just like by being around other people. Um, I think my first year, I had an engineering professor. He gave me the best advice that I've ever gotten. I don't like him as a person, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and I don't think he even like meant it the way that I took it, but he was like, the best thing you can do as an engineer is be friends with people who aren't engineers. And I think he just meant to like hang out with the biologist once a month, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but like I think it really um, made me think about how like interacting with other scientists and like their perspectives mm -hmm. and how they think about the same problem really gets a fuller picture of a solution. Definitely. And talking to yeah. people in humanities is always really beneficial and yeah. talking to people and getting their questions. Like I really enjoy um, explaining my research and then hearing people in history or English or art ask really interesting questions I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, and definitely. it opens my eyes to perspective. Yeah. So I think that's Absolutely. really important. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso, and my guests today are Phoebe Bisnoff from the Chemical Engineering Department and Becky Smith from the Geoscience Department. My co-host is Panina Beattie. Jumping right back into it, 
I want to um, go back to the superconducting coffee grounds. Yeah. Good, <laughs> and, like, good could you tell us about how that, how you made that? Ugh. Okay, that was two years ago. So <laughs> like, I don't really remember. I'm going to fumble around with that a okay. little bit. Um, so, basically, I took used coffee grounds from my home. I brought them to campus, and I put them in a tube furnace um, over in Conti. That was in my old research labs. And, basically, a tube furnace is basically going to crank up the heat and crank up the pressure until it's basically just carbon. Oh. and nothing else and it's just um and because it came from an organic structure it has this kind of inherent like nanoporous interesting structure that you just can't build you know oh. um and we also tried using banana peels for this as well we never actually got around to making the superconductors because we had three weeks mm -hmm. um, with the banana peels but we did make it with the coffee grounds um and we used like Lab grade aluminum foil, um, some potassium <laughs> wait, salt. Wait, yes. is, is lab grade aluminum foil really different than regular yeah. aluminum foil? It's less oxidized. Oh. Um, it's just like it's pure aluminum foil. So oh. it's just like is it shinier? really nice aluminum foil. <laughs> <laughs> is it shinier? No. no. It looks the same. <laughs> it looks I, know, the same. I think with regular like kitchen tin, uh, mm -hmm. aluminum foil, it, if you if you were to like burn it or something, it would the, cha the color would change very quickly, yeah, right? Absolutely. So that's not necessarily, that's not the case with... Um, greater. No, it would still burn. Yeah, it would still do that. <laughs> it it's would just turn, like it would it's still more turn, like, brownish. Okay. Whereas like kitchen grade probably has like a bunch of fillers in it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for nobody <laughs> likes a filler. Interrupting that story. You're right. <laughs> That's true. I don't even know what that means, but it's true. <laughs> it's like um, it's a big problem in like makeup products. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's yeah. a tweet. That's a tweet That's right a tweet. there. <laughs> nobody likes a filler. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, we would just take our material and we would basically just take like filter paper, like lab filter paper. We would cut it into the right size and we would kind of sandwich it. Then we would saturate the filter paper with um, potassium or lithium salt. Then we would put the aluminum foil on it and then we would just kind of wrap it into a little Roll conductor blunt. shape. Exactly. It, it was blood Is shape. Is that allowed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, I think cool. so. Um, and then we would just put charge on it and see if it worked. And it usually did. Wow. Yeah. And if also, you used yeah. fresh coffee grounds, it probably, you would it have had to work. burn off more. Yeah. Um, it's just not as electronically conducting mm -hmm. as if you just pare it down to the carbon. That sounds yeah. like a fun science project. Like, yeah. like, do you, have you, I guess this is a question for both of you, but like when you were growing up, like I guess before you kind of realized that science, like, the sciences in STEM was kind of the direction that you wanted to go. Um, were there particular things that were like fascinating to you that, you know, sparked your interest? Or just in general? Yeah. Um, I really loved the Food Network. <laughs> um, <laughs> Solid. Yeah, like Good Eats and Unwrapped were my favorite. Oh, Good Eats, so good. good. Eats, yeah, Good Eats Alton. was very like food chemistry based, That's and I was true, always yeah. like, I remember the bread episode specifically. I remember watching that when I was like eleven or something. I don't know. I don't remember when that came out. But he like you know brings down the like matrix of like nylon ropes, and he was like, "This is gluten," and I was like, "That's crazy." <laughs> um, and then I also really loved Unwrapped. Which was kind oh, yeah, of like that was a good one too. Yeah. I forgot it was about like that. How they made like processed foods, yeah. which I think, you know, the Good Eats was very much like 
I was like, chemistry's cool. But the unwrapped part, I was like, engineering is cool. Ah. And then I found out you could do chemical engineering, and I was like, that's even crazier. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, chemical engineering is just chemistry, but like scaled up. Um, cool. Is generally how it's described, but it's yeah. very broad and confusing. Huh. So. Nice. Yeah. So Food Network completely inspired food you to sign your career. Correct. I do have wow. an unfinished minor in food science that oh, I will oh. never finish. Oh, okay. Um, but it was fun and I liked it. Nice. Yeah. Um, I really, like, I grew up near the ocean in Maine and I really loved, like, learning about marine biology and stuff. And then in high school, I just really enjoyed sci-fi and it was really yeah. cool. Really yeah. cool kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I watched a lot of Twilight Zone. I <laughs> Twilight Zone. And Star Trek. Yeah. Star Trek. Um, and I really liked Nova and like those Earth shows. So I studied a lot of like when I was in high school, I studied astrophysics, and I loved that. And that's kind of how I got into geology, nice. long train. But I just think learning about space is really cool. Mm. And then I realized what I liked most about space was what was like on planets. Mm. And I was like, okay, but we have our planet to look at, so let's start there. Mm -hmm. nice. So yeah. So you look at proteins, but like. Yeah. rocks? Yeah, it's a long... This might be a good transition. <laughs> um, I don't know if... I, so, yeah, it might be a good time to move and talk to Becky. I don't know if there's anything that didn't come about your research that you want to talk about, Phoebe? No, that's pretty much it. Okay. Becky, you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? Oh, yeah. So I uh, study climate change, basically, but I look at climate change in really... of a really old time on Earth, so... Earth is pretty old itself, but I look at the period from about 3.3 to 3.0 million years ago, um, which is called the Mid-Pliocene Warm Period, and essentially it's the last time on Earth that we saw CO2 concentrations as high as they are today. Mm. Um, so we look at this period and we look at certain um, what we call climate forcing mechanisms at this time so that we can really understand how Earth functioned then, and that helps us to kind of understand we've forced climate today with a lot of CO2 emissions, and we don't really know how that's going to change our living conditions. So we study these old periods in order to understand what we should expect. Mm. Um, of course, back then, climate was being forced by a number of factors and over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's being forced really quickly because we've just pumped CO2. So um, the circumstances are different, but we can study that period and hopefully understand and predict what we should see in terms of sea level rise and um, things like that. So what, that's what, we what were the factors back then, then other than natural that I know that there are like peaks and valleys in terms of like cooling right. periods and warming right. Periods, so there's natural glacial interglacial mm -hmm. cyclicity, but it also has to do with the location of, you know, it has to do with a few different factors, but, um, the tilt of the Earth and the location of Earth around the sun mm -hmm. um, can all contribute to warming in that period. Um, the kind whose cycles are much natural longer. Natural and longer, right. yeah. Well, the thing yeah. a lot of climate change deniers say is like, you know, climate change is cyclic and we have CO2 um, ups and downs all the time. What's different about now? You know, like mm -hmm. why would humans be a factor? And uh, the truth is, climate change is cyclic but um we should be in a um like we should be in a cooling period right now really yeah um based on the position of based on a lot of factors but we should be 
expecting an ice age eventually and we're actually going in the reverse direction mm-hmm. um, and also just rate of change in general is a huge factor so back then rate, rate of change was gradual so species had time to adapt but right now our right. our rate of change is so fast that species are going to go extinct mm-hmm. and that's the big um, concern is like human extinction at this point mm-hmm. um, people are always saying um, this is just kind of my my thing people say like we need to save earth but honestly earth is going to be fine mm-hmm. um, earth mm-hmm. is pretty old and it's very um, <laughs> capable of <laughs> um, rebounding it's more just like species that are sensitive yeah. yeah so that's what we're thinking about and city planning and you know negotiating that, like yeah. how to survive mm-hmm. um, under different conditions so anyway um, the way I do this is kind of interesting um, we we look at these uh, sediment cores collected uh, on sailing expeditions, and these sediment cores have layers of uh, mud that have different ages. So mm-hmm. we can track like the top of the core will be pretty young, and then the bottom of the core would be the oldest. So you can kind of create a record mm-hmm. over time if you extract things from the core. So in my case, we actually extract um, these lipid compounds that were produced by organisms living in the ocean. So these, all these like phytoplankton and algaes lived in the surface of the ocean and photosynthesized and adapted their chemical composition to different water temperatures. Mm. And then they died and descended through the water column mm. and settled on sediment. And their bodies were basically capturing the sea surface temperature at the time they lived. Oh, cool. So when they die, they obviously, like, over years and years, there's layers of dead organisms, and the organisms um, disintegrate. But what's left over are these lipids, Mm. which are, like, oils. And we can extract those lipids and figure out exactly how warm the ocean was when those organisms were alive. Mm. So it's kind of a cool way to reconstruct changes in ocean temperature over time by using dead organisms. So Mm. the... The biogeochem is basically the bio is the dead organisms, the geo is the sediment, and the chem is the lipids. So it's a big hodgepodge of stuff. So it's very interdisciplinary across yeah, sciences. Very, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I always appreciate hearing from different um, fields about it because everyone has a re- really good insight. Um, How do you determine temperature from the lipids? Yeah, so I, a bunch of really brilliant scientists um, came up with different proxies, which are different methods of... Um, analyzing the concentration of different compounds in a, in a sample and mm-hmm. saying, like, if you have this ratio of these compounds, you get this temperature. Mm-hmm. And if you have this ratio, you get a different temperature. So they, they calibrated all these proxies and used modern sediments to say, like, okay, if we use this proxy on modern, modern sediments, do we get modern temperatures? Mm-hmm. So they could kind of check <clears throat> to see if the proxies actually work. Mm-hmm. And when they do work, you can apply them to older oh. stuff. Um, nice. So it's basically a ratio of different compounds mm-hmm. um, that we look at. And then once we get those ratios, we can say, like, okay, it was, you know, 26 degrees Celsius or 31 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. I know um, aquatic animals generally have, like, liquid oils in their bodies, whereas, like, we have fat, you know? Mm-hmm. Does that play a role in the lipids? Well, they're not really, I mean... I'm not actually sure because I'm looking at such small organisms mm-hmm. like phytoplankton and microalgaes. Mm-hmm. Water bears? Um, water bears. Do you, do you look at water bears? <laughs> giant, giant water bears. No, we. I look at things what? that are so small like um, if you ever see... <laughs> Wait, water bears are tiny. No, you're talking... You're like, what are they called? The... 
Tar- oh, the ones with like the, the suction are faces. Are they the tar- yeah. tardigrades? Is that right? Tar- yeah, yeah, I think is that so. What it's called? I don't yeah. know. Oh, I think I'm. I'm worried. I'm Dude, saying they're the wrong so word. cool. Really? Which is yeah. I wasn't sure like, they were real. Their whole thing no, is that they can. Oh yeah, they're real. Yeah. I actually, I actually saw initially the first time I ever saw it. Yeah, the first time I ever saw anything about it was like I think it was like the History Channel, and it was like three phenomenon phenomena in the world and one of, and one of them is real and the other two are fake oh. and so it was like one of them was water bears one of them was the, this thing called rods which is like i don't know you like look in pictures and there's like something like some kind of like squiggle or something on the picture and it's like what are these things are they rods and then the other one was this guy who believed that he was inca- reincarnated so like the two right. truths. Water that. bears was the real. Yeah, basically. <laughs> they don't actually look like bears. I'm, pu- I'm pulling like, up yeah, the picture. Oh, I have seen those. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're, I think they're kind of cute. Actually. And they're, they're, they're so cute. cute. And they can, their whole thing is they can just like shut down. If they're in an environment, they can adapt to a lot of environments. Mm-hmm. And then they can shut down if they can't adapt oh, until okay. they until are like. So they can preserve themselves. Yeah. And I think they live for a long time, too. Oh, okay. Well, we... They're cool. I wonder what those, the lipid signatures would be of those. We look mm-hmm. at very specific species, so... Oh, you so you know what the species yeah. are. Yeah. Well, we, we hope... We, we know certain... For certain proxies, we have different um, organisms producing the compounds. So, mm-hmm. like, we can reconstruct sea surface temperature from a suite of um, compounds produced by different species, such as haptophyte algaes or... Um, and you know, Thaumarchiota, which is another. So they're single-cell organisms for the most part, or they. Some of them are single-celled organisms. Um, cool. And they they're pretty amazing in terms of their adaptability to different climates, and some of them can survive in subsurface temperatures. So sometimes we have to wonder whether we're seeing a surface or subsurface temperature signal. Uh. Um, and then some of them are actually reflecting air temperatures in nearby continents because they're they were you know growing in sediments um onshore and were blown offshore by winds so we can actually reconstruct um land temperatures as well which is really useful in terms of tracking continent um how how continents have reacted to certain climate changes Mm. in the past interesting Um, so you can distinguish between things that came from continents versus Ocean. Yeah, we can distinguish whether it's coming from the ocean, whether it's coming from a freshwater versus marine source, or oh, wow. whether it's coming from soils. So it's kind of, it's kind of remarkable what some scientists have figured out. You know, it's like the DNA <laughs> so is not yeah, only an instruction manual like for that organism. It's also kind of an instruction manual for like understanding the climate, the climate at the time. Yeah, we don't actually use DNA, way. but the the different species for sure. It's like okay. a handbook of different things we can okay. figure out about climate, which is super um, fun. And I don't know, I think it's pretty remarkable that someone figured that out, because I definitely would never <laughs> Or that. a lot of people figured it out. A lot of out, people, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people. So you're like building on all this work. Expeditions. There's a few different ones, but the, the one that my, so my advisor went on a expedition to Northwest Australia. Mm-hmm. And collected the sediments used for my master's research. Um, and the expedition's called the International Ocean Discovery Program. And they're these giant ships with, like, full chemistry labs on them. And uh, they go out for about two months and collect. They have these big coring machines, and they collect sediment cores. And the scientists work 12-hour shifts every day for two, two months. And I actually just got accepted to sail... Um, 
in, off the coast of Chile next what? May. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, thanks. That's, That's so, so exciting. exciting. Hopefully it goes. It's a very stormy place, so I'm not really, like, I'm hoping that they sail. But basically the, the motivation there was it's near an ocean gateway, which is like a, um, a small point where water can travel through between ocean basins and mm. That's what my master's research looked at was the Indonesian through flow, which is the mm. gateway between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And mm. is that um, like in Finding Nemo? Like you remember they were that going like in, in that. Rim? Oh, that's they were. Um, I think they. It's were, not the same thing, but it's similar. I think they were actually on the um, East Gulf Stream, East. maybe. You remember in the in Nemo, they got they got in the Gulf Stream with and moved the turtles. Fast I have in to the admit turtles. that I haven't seen Finding Nemo. Oh, wow. dear. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a real oh. weirdo. Podcast done. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> leaves. Wait, did you like we don't want to talk Rim? to you anymore. Was it accurate? You should. I never, what, is that a movie? Pacific Rim? Is that a movie? Yeah. Okay. No, it's like it. monsters come out of the ocean and oh. they talk a lot about like the ocean gateways. Oh, I think you should watch it. I should. Oh. I definitely should watch it. You would like it. The second one is that's not so good. Okay. <laughs> oh, there's multiple. There's only two. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, that's super cool. So what's, um, I guess, what's one way that your research affects uh, climate change research today and how it's, I guess, how it's helping? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I love hearing good questions. Right. Like um <laughs> So the thing is, like, I work with a lot of climate modelers, and essentially they look at a lot of different factors during these warm periods that change climate. So they need every different variable. They need to understand how ocean gateways work. They need to know about CO2. They need to know about ice caps. It is all important. Right. And, and they need to build a really um, strong foundation of a climate model of these warm periods. So all the information we give them helps to improve the resolution of these climate models essentially like the more data you have what's a climate model exactly so essentially what they do is they can reconstruct what the climate looked like at these times okay. so they use all these different variables to say like this is what earth looked like in the past and in order to get that information they use us and then they can actually use those same f mechanisms like if we put earth under this co2 mm -hmm. And these ice conditions, what will it look like in the future? Okay. So we use all that information in the past, and that helps us get a really good idea of how Earth responded to those different mechanisms. And then we can project those different, those same mechanisms in the mm -hmm. future and see Even what Even if the mechanisms t of today are mostly man-made? Right. Even though there are a lot of, like, the forcing that's happening is because of increased um, CO2, we can look at how Earth adapted to high co2 in the past okay and mm -hmm. kind of figure out what we should expect mm -hmm. um because there's certain things that regardless of how it happens earth is going to um you know respond a certain way like if you if you warm up a body sure. of water it will kill the fish take up more volume oh oh like, yeah so i forgot about that sea level is not just about melting ice it's also about like if you warm up something it uses up more volume so if you warm up the oceans you're gonna have it rise even without, you know, that, without adding more water. You don't have to add yeah. more water. You right. just have to heat it up. So the models are really incorporating, like, the physics of all yeah. of the different processes yeah. happening. So it's, like, how much heat is being absorbed by the land right. because of the angle of the sun at this time. And, like, how does that then affect air circulation right. and right. circulation Albedo, in the water? Like and how reflective snow is at the poles. Like, right. uh, there's so many factors, and each factor is pretty much equally important. Mm. So it's really complicated to predict future climate change because if you aren't, aren't thinking about one factor, you, mm -hmm. you're 
predictions will be off. So mm. essentially they have to think about like sea surface temperatures. They have to think about all these things to be able to actually figure out what could happen. Mm. So that's why there's so many different types of climate people um, that do different things. There's glaciologists, there's people that do what I do with biogeochemists. And it's grossly and underfunded. All, <laughs> yeah, and we all kind of work together and then try to hopefully talk to people who don't know as much about climate change because mm -hmm. it is like something that's really not discussed um, from scientists. It's discussed from people in media that don't really know what they're talking about, which is too bad, but um, it's kind of the way it is. So the more we like, the more talks Laura does, the more it helps people just genuinely hear the facts mm -hmm. and not hear it through a middle middleman. Right. So when yeah. something gets politicized, it can be really hard to yeah. like figure out who. Even What's on both that? sides, people right. will be you know mm -hmm. will exaggerate. Right. And so you're like, where can I get good, reliable Real information? In context is always really important. So in mm -hmm. sciences in any mm -hmm. journal or article that you'll read, mm -hmm. there's always certain um, exceptions sure. and things you have to think about. And uh, you know, if, if you take those out of context, so in, the, in terms of climate change, if you read a journal and it says, these are our uh, errors and these are the possibilities for error, someone might jump mm -hmm. on that and write an article about that and how you can't mm -hmm. actually look at our data. So it's like, it's like anything, it's problematizing everything. Exactly, yeah. and so one of my professors <clears throat> released one of the biggest climate curves um, mm. to this date, um, Ray Bradley, and he released a book called Global Warming and Political Intimidation. Mm. Cool. And in the early, um, I think in the 90s, he and a few other people released what's called the hockey stick curve, which is showing how um, CO2 is cyclic, but in the past 100 years or so, it's it's reached uh, unpre unprecedented levels in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And the government shut down his work and brought him to court. And One, they, they were continuously battling this for like 10 years. And it's actually all over the news if you go back. Um, this is the foundation of a lot of climate change denial. People will cite this case. And to this day, a lot of the authors get hate mail. Um, but it's still, it's been, they, uh, so they, made, they shut down the research and then a different set of scientists repeated it and confirmed it was all true. Course, um, yeah. But essentially, during one of the court cases, I was reading Ray's book, and he was saying how they brought, have you guys read the book Andromeda Strain? It's mm -hmm. a big yeah. sci-fi book. Anyway, they brought the author of this book on into court and had him testify against Ray. And because he's such a popular fiction writer, people loved him and were like, you know what? When he says climate change is not real, is it Elron Hubbard? Was it Elron Hubbard? No, no, no. <laughs> um, I forget what his name is. Uh, I should look it up. It's not Michael Crichton. Yeah, Michael it Crichton. Is. Thank okay, you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard about how yeah. he. Yeah. Well, he wrote. Didn't he write like Jurassic Park? No. I think no. no. Well, maybe I don't remember. Anyway. <laughs> we should look that up. Um, <laughs> don't know my literary but, history. Yeah, so <laughs> like all of these newscasters were like, "Oh, if Michael Crichton says it." then Ugh. this famous scientist can't be right. Yeah. This person and, that uh, writes fiction. Right. <laughs> yeah, Science they bring fiction, fiction writers. <laughs> yes. and, um, so they, uh, the federal government like, would like s do little things to slow down his research so that just he couldn't keep going. Mm -hmm. But he just has so many stories of how he would get basically threats from the federal government. And it's kind of comparable to like cigarettes and the tobacco industry threatening mm -hmm. cancer researchers like right, stop your work because mm -hmm. it's threatening us it'll kill the coal mine industry and the right. oil industry yeah. and right the money. which is and it's sad because you know the huff post even would jump on ray's articles and say like look these are their errors this therefore it can't be true and all of that bad 
publicity is the foundation of a lot of misinformation and mm. climate change um, denial. S- denial resources. And if you just sit with the scientists and say, like, this is what I've heard. These are the things that I've heard about how climate change isn't real. A climate change scientist can list every reason that um, it is happening and and make it very clear, but it's rare that that is the case. It's rare that people get interviewed and can really lay out the information mm-hmm. um, accurately. So it's always exciting to have the opportunity to um, in a non-biased way, because essentially it's just we're the only country that even debates whether it's real. Yeah. Um, every other country just accepts it. It's fact. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a belief. I don't know how that got started. It's science. You know? <laughs> right. It's not yeah. something you believe in. Yeah. Um, it's just a fact, and we've proven it. And yeah. It's about yeah. evidence. It's yeah. evidence. Yeah. Well, there's an amount of evidence. Yeah. yeah. And you and convince yourself of you know you deny y- yourself of facts for long enough. Yeah. You know? It doesn't matter what what you say to somebody who right. staunchly mm-hmm. believes something. Right, and I actually had a conversation with a family member who's really didn't, you know, be- believe in it and didn't mm-hmm. agree with it. And I just showed him, like, the hockey stick curve, and I showed him all the information and just explained mm-hmm. the science, and he's like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I really don't have anything to say about that. Like, nice. I can't really That's debate awesome. that. So you, you were able to actually break through the, like... yeah. Yeah, and I think the problem is a lot of people get really angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really hard to talk about this. And a lot of people make climate change deniers more angry because they are like, you're just so ignorant, mm-hmm. which is not the way to approach it. You know, mm-hmm. people just haven't heard certain things. And until you inform people, of course, they're not going to know. So you right. can't really be angry. It's just something you have to, mm-hmm. I feel like, approach with an open mind because everyone's coming from a different background of education and yeah again what you see in the, in the media is really mm. I mean I, I've definitely fallen for that like you see something in the media and you think it's true and you don't really know what the truth is so yeah. Yeah. I hate to cut off our conversation but we're I'm mindful of the time <laughs> and I want to get to our last segment which is a little oh, game God. that I invented called <laughs> guess that acronym guess that oh, acronym it's GTA <laughs> Sorry. GTA. Sorry, Grand Grand uh, I know what that stands for. <laughs> um, and so my guests have provided G- me with some acronyms, <laughs> and we're going to try to make a Can I guess? Guess what they are. Can I guess? Oh. Well? Can we allow the other scientists? Because I probably yeah, actually we could do Yeah, I would absolutely not know. Okay. So your first acronym is MALDI. M A L D I. Yeah. MALDI. Okay. That's a good one. Manatees always like doing it. <laughs> You're right. They do. They do. That's a big part of chemical engineering. In fact, I mean, you have to remind yourself. It's a principle. Just remember, anytime you're not sure where to go, just remember manatees always love doing it. They love it. You can't only do your work unless you remember that. That's true. We have posters. Yeah. Manatee posters all over. Okay. Do you want to explain what it actually stands for? Oh, I think. She actually stole my guess. Oh, yeah. Wow. wow. I know. I was it was guess. that powerful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, matrix-assisted laser deposition um, slash ionization. That was my other guess. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That was my second. That was my second so what does that mean? Like, what is So that? it's basically this big, tall machine. And what you do is you basically put your sample, um, you put it into solution, and then you deposit it onto this, like, little... Um, there are a couple different matrices that you can use, but it's pretty much like a crystalline material. 
that is made specifically for this machine. And you put it in the machine and then you just shoot lasers at it. And then it's used for big molecules specifically because when you shoot the lasers at it, it comes off of the um, crystalline solid into gas as an ion. And then you can actually mm -hmm. like see what's going on mm -hmm. in a mass spectrometry uh, that's connected to the Maldi. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So lasers. <laughs> lasers, yeah. Lasers. Which that's an acronym Ions. within an acronym, right? It the is, lasers yeah. are in there. Lasers, it's lasers. Oh yeah. yeah, I always forget that. Okay, it's a fun Actually. one. Okay, so our next acronym is GPC. Global positioning. <laughs> I I mean I don't chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> that was why I hesitated. <laughs> so that's how you find chocolate in any location. It's like there's an app for it too. It's, really it's like echolocation. It's like a satellite. Just was I right for, for the first? I I saw Laura's face light up. I got the first. Well, word no, right. no, that was a good. I mean, is there polymer in that anywhere? <laughs> no. Damn it, baby. Do you want to polymers though? Do you want to jump in? No, no, that was my extent of my guess. Gel permeation chromatography. Oh, cool. Yeah. That was my second that. guess. Oh, it's, it's fun stuff. Um, that joke's never going to get old. these, like, big, um, like, silica beads with all these, like, pores in it. And then you put in a oh. polymer sample, and, like, the smaller molecular weights will kind of get stuck oh, okay. in That's the really cool. pores. And the larger ones will move through faster. So it's, like, separating stuff and, like, also yeah. seeing, like, what weight they are. Ah, so it's like a sieve for polymers. That's it's like one of those change machines that you yeah. put in <laughs> <laughs> separates it out. Yeah, That's, like, actually, yeah, you're right. That's yes. exactly what it is. Okay. Wow. Where's I'm my PhD? My, Where's my PhD? That. That's great. Nice. <laughs> At least in comedy. Come on. All right. We do. Um, some all right. We're killing it. Next one. I'm excited. I like this game. Okay, so your next acronym is... GDGT. Gross domestic. Um, green. Green. Green um, terrarium. <laughs> I don't. So that's, I went that's two different many, directions. That's how many terrariums per person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gross. <laughs> gross terrarium. <laughs> gross domestic green terrariums. Nice. In the yeah. As opposed to the blue ones. All right. Of okay. course. <laughs> okay. Do you want to jump in, Becky? Do you want to guess? <laughs> what mm. was it? GDGT? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, gas transition ginormous Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> oh, that would be such a good yep. one. Like they actually mentioned that in Jurassic War, Jurassic Park. <laughs> is that written by Michael Crichton? I need to know now. I'm like, it's gonna I, kill okay, me. wait. It before you check that, though, before. can you tell us what the okay, acronym is? Okay, so means? it stands for glycer. Excuse me, I, I've misspoken this word several times. Um, it's glycerol dialkylglycerol tetraethers, which are the compounds we use to reconstruct um, sea surface temperatures uh, from um, thaumarchaeota, which are little microorganisms in the ocean. Okay, so that's the lipid? It's the lipid mm -hmm. that is in these uh, organisms, and then once the organism dies, we can extract the lipid and you know use different solvents to get it mm -hmm. on a GC or an HPLC and look at it. Cool. Oh, and he did write Jurassic Park and Westworld. Oh. Uh, Just look that Wikipedia good. page up. Huh. Gonna... <sighs> Well, that's uh, that's the end of our show. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me, Panina and Phoebe and Becky. Thanks for having thank us you. so much. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. This is awesome. Keep oh, killing it.
You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today were Phoebe Bisnoff from the Chemical Engineering Department and Becky Smith from the Geoscience Department. My co-host was Hartford comedian Panina Beattie. Um, you can check out Lab Talk with Laura online on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Facebook. Give us a like and a share. Check out old episodes. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked in 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.